say a lot about. Can say a lot. Can say a lot about Brother Mark, but he can take a hint. Uh, <coughs> it may take several hints, but but I love the the message of the song that we just sang. Oh, church, arise. The the church in the United States, the church in America, is indeed a sleeping giant filled with with resources and wealth and and numbers untold, while the church scattered in India and China and South Asia and South America and the Middle East is literally being bludgeoned to death. We sit in our our cathedrals, our edifices, and our air condition, and we're sleeping. Knowing that God has a purpose for His church to reach the lost of the nations with the gospel, to set them free from, from bondage, to set them free from from sin and death, that they might know Christ and know Him more abundantly. I pray that we would arise, church. If you've got your Bibles, that was free of charge, by the way. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. We're going to continue in chapter 5 and grow on into chapter 6 this morning. We've been looking at the story of Daniel, and I want to go ahead and and warn you now uh, that that the book of Daniel uh, has been a narrative uh, and will be a narrative for about one more chapter. And then in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and through the end of the book, we're, we're going to transition from a narrative of the book of Daniel to, to some more prophetic uh, and apocalyptic aspects of the book of Daniel. So whenever, if you've been reading along and you've been studying and you say, oh, well, this is nice, these, you know, these kings and and furnaces and lions and and i i can understand that but whenever i get to seven and there are uh uh you know visions and and beasts and and animals and i don't know what all that means uh let me encourage you no one else does either uh so we'll just try and wade through that together daniel chapter five we're going to read verses 30 through chapter six verse 15 (coughs) daniel chapter 30 verses daniel chapter five verse 30 through chapter six verse 15 That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdoms that they should be in charge over the whole kingdom. And over the realm and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps may be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over all of the kingdom. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find grounds of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs. But they could not. They could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful And no negligence or corruption was found to be in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. 
Then these commissioners and satraps began, came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius lived forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom's prefects and satraps and high officials of the governors had consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that if anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign this document that it, might, that it might not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered into his house. In his roof chambers, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying, giving thanks before his God. As he, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. As soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king established may be changed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, let's hear your word. Lord, may you speak to our hearts. May we not just know truth, Lord, but may you apply truth by, the, by your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to bring us into obedience. Lord, that you may use us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I want to back up for just a moment to chapter 5. And if we remember, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, but Belshazzar was a, a uh, succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. He became one of the rulers in the, king of, in the nation in the empire of Babylon, the Babylonian empire, after Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and Daniel has this, or, uh, Belshazzar has this dream, and Daniel interprets this dream and says, Oh, just so you know, king, your kingdom is going to fall, and, and it's going to happen. And then the scripture tells us that, that Belshazzar, that Belshazzar uh, verse 29, uh, gave, gave orders that, that the king... Uh, that Daniel will be clothed with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and has issued a proclamation concerning him that now he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom, that, that because of the, the, the commission, because of what the king had said, that he honored Daniel. Not that he wanted to, but that because of his word, he honored Daniel, that, that he had made this decree, said, I'm going to, to place whoever is able to interpret this dream. I'm going to give him positions of authority, and I'm going to give him positions of administration. I'm going to... Uh, bestow upon them these these lavish luxuries and so he does so but i want to call your attention to verse 30 
Verse 30, it says, that very night. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. And if you remember in chapter 4, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever Nebuchadnezzar was, was filled with pride and said, my empire, my kingdom is like none other. We talked about the grandeur of, of Babylon and the, the hanging gardens. And we talked about the walls and the, 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 the walls that were so wide that you could drive a chariot over them. And there were six of those. And there were these towers by which, by which archers could sit and pick off the enemies as they came. And they attacked Babylon. And Belshazzar sat in this palace, the same palace that Nebuchadnezzar sat in, and said, Who is greater than I? What kingdom, what nation, what empire is greater than the Babylonians and he sat in that same palace and he thought himself to be invincible he thought himself to be impenetrable yes this this dream that I have had says this and yes this this interpretation says this but I am the king of Babylon I'm surrounded by six walls surrounded by by a moat that 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 I am impenetrable I am invincible that very night, he was overthrown. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 12, verse 20. Luke chapter 12, verse 20. Jesus tells a parable. Jesus tells a parable of a certain rich man. He says to his disciples, do not be anxious. Verse 20, uh, let's start in verse, uh, let's start in verse 15. And he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every, against every from, be on your guard against every form of greed for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, verse 16, the land of a certain rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops he said this is what I'll do I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns there I will store all my grain and all my goods and I will say to my soul soul you have many goods laid up for many years to come take eat eat drink and be merry but God said to him you fool this very night your soul is required of you now who will own what you have prepared there was another time that phrase, this very night, was used in John chapter 13, verse 30. John chapter 13, verse 30. After receiving the morsel, after receiving the bread, he went out immediately that very night. Judas Iscariot, that very night, went out and betrayed Jesus. There is something about pride haughtiness, arrogance. When we believe that we are invincible, whenever we believe that, that we are immune to the judgment of God, whenever we believe that, that, that we stand above the law, the scripture tells us that very night Belshazzar lost his kingdom. The most powerful man in all of the world is not immune to the judgment of God. Belshazzar lost his kingdom that very night the chaldeans came in the medes the persians 
slaughter took over the Babylonians and the Persians took over. Now, we get to chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and, and, and we begin to see something that, that is very similar and eerily familiar that we've already read. As we read chapter 6, it sounds very similar to chapter 3. We read chapter 6 and he says that, that, that Daniel and the, the Hebrews were, God's favor was upon them and they were being blessed and they were being given authority over all of the, over all of the, the, the kingdoms and all of the administration of the kingdom and, and that the people that were in the kingdom did not like that. Does that sound familiar? There's a man named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and God's favor was upon them and, and they were being established, Daniel and his friends were being established as as, as authority and God's favor was upon them and all of the other sorcerers and all the other magicians and conjurers that they didn't like that very much and they went to the king and they said let's 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 devise this plan to 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 destroy these these Hebrew children does that sound familiar it ought to because chapter 6 and chapter 3 mirror each other in a lot of ways as as the Babylonian Empire uh, and you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this, this statue where, they, where they're called to lay down, to bow down and worship. And then you have this, this other Persian empire and this statute that they are called to bow down and, and to, to, to use Darius as the mediator between God and man. And that if you pray to any other god or any other deity other than, other than the king of Persia for 30 days, then you'll be thrown into the lion's den rather than the fiery furnace. But it sounds eerily familiar. Look at chapter 1 through 3. The scripture tells us that even though, even though Babylon had fallen, that the favor of God was upon Daniel. Look at verse 2. It says, Over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. Then Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. I want us to notice that even in the midst of the judgment of God, that God is still gracious. Where is, where is Israel? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in, in, in Israel. They are in exile. Why are they in exile? This is, this is the part where, 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 where we can have dialogue. Why is Israel in exile? Because they were righteous or because they were disobedient? They were disobedient. They were, they were in exile because of idolatry, right? God said, don't have any other gods. They said, yeah, we don't really think you mean that. And so they spend generation after generation after generation giving themselves, the scriptures tells us, playing the harlot, giving themselves to other gods. And God says, if you don't stop, I'm going to give you over to your enemies. And they said, we really don't think you mean that. And God said, I'm telling you, if you don't stop, I'm going to cause your enemies to raise up against you and to send you into exile. And after generation after generation after prophet after prophet after prophet, God said, fine. You want to suffer the, 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 the consequences of your sin. You want to be handed over to your idolatry. I will give you over to your idolatry. And, and God gave them over to the depravity of their hearts. And they suffered exile, the northern kingdom first from the Assyrians and the southern kingdom from the Babylonians and now from the Persians. And so Israel is in the midst of judgment. Yet the scripture tells us in chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, that even in the midst of judgment, that God's favor was upon his people. This is very similar to the wilderness wanderer. 
You look at the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is all about the wilderness wanderings. It is all about the judgment of God. Why did Israel wander around in the wilderness for 40 years? It wasn't because they didn't stop and ask for directions. It wasn't because they didn't know where they were supposed to go. They were wandering in the wilderness as the judgment of God. Because God said, you will wander in the wilderness for every one year, for every day that the spies were in the promised land. And they came back because you have not believed because you have not believed, you have not trusted that I, your God, will deliver, this, will deliver this land into your hands. And you have trusted this false report. You have failed to believe. And so they wandered in the wilderness as a judgment of God. And what we don't realize is while they were wandering in the wilderness, they were performing and burying hundreds and thousands of people every day. We think that they were just kind of camped out picking up manna in the morning and, and you know, you know kind, of, kind of going about their business during the day. But do you realize then in 40 years, an entire generation had to die? An entire generation of, of probably close to a million people? That's a lot of funerals in 40 years. The, 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 the stink of death was amongst the people of Israel. And even in the midst of God's judgment, even in the midst of God's discipline, he gave them manna. Their clothes didn't wear out. They had fire by day, fire by night, cloud by day. And when they got tired of eating manna and started griping and complaining like, like we do, God said, fine, here's some quail. The blessings of God were abundant and his favor was abundant to them in the midst of judgment. And he even protected them from Balak. As Balaam, the, 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 the wicked prophet, goes up on top of the mountain to curse Israel, three times he tries to curse Israel, and out of his mouth comes what? Blessings. Was Israel aware of all this going on? No, they're clueless. Even in God's judgment, his favor rests upon his people. Israel's in Babylon. They're in Persia, suffering in exile. And what happens? Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the favor of God rests upon them. Now, as we read the story, it's eerily familiar. You know, a change of scenery doesn't always fix our problems. Sometimes we think that, you know, if I could just, you know, move to a new house, or if I could just get a new boyfriend, or if I could just, you know, get a new, uh, uh, you know, get a new job, or if I could, if I could just change my scenery, then things will get better. Israel went from Babylon to Persia. Things didn't get better, did it? The same. The scenery doesn't alleviate our problems. Israel was still suffering in the midst of exile. This points out to us a couple of things. One, that while the change of scenery doesn't alleviate our problems, there is also a reality that yesterday's victories, earlier victories, do not, earlier victories do not guarantee absence from future crisis. 
Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already been through this. And, 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 and you're going to go back and you're going to read chapter 3 and you're going to be like, okay, well, Daniel's not there. No, we don't know where Daniel was in chapter 3. But we also know that, that the people of Israel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were absolutely there. And, and there's no reason to believe that they would not be here in Persia as well. We also know that, that last year's victory... Last year's overcoming of, of the, the, the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar does not alleviate them and does not guarantee avoidance of the future crisis. Here we have, uh, here we have proof that, that a faithful life is not one where in a snapshot you are faithful. But a faithful life is one that must be lived until the end. Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say, as long as you're faithful once, you're good to go. No, what did he tell his disciples? He said, he who endures to the end, he will be saved. Go with, go with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. As Paul is giving his farewell address to, the, to his pastor, to young Timothy, he says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The, the, the testimony of, of a life of faith is one who endures, not one who has a moment of, of, of grandeur, not one who has a moment of fidelity, but one who endures to the end. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Peter says, I'm sorry, Paul, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews says, for brethren, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every sin and encumbrance which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, sat down at the right hand of the, of the Father. It is the idea of running with endurance the race that is set before us. And here we see Daniel years and years and years after the exile. He's probably an old man at this point. He's been faithful to the end. I want us to look at verse 5. These men said, We shall not find any grounds of accusation against this Daniel. What a testimony. What a testimony of his life. That after years and years and years of service in political office. There's a miracle right there, church. That there was a man who was in political office, who was in a position of power, position of authority, position of, of, of wealth. Here was a man with whom there was no corruption, with whom there was no unrighteousness. Verse 5 says that they found no grounds of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Even his enemies were aware of his faithfulness. Even his enemies were aware of his fidelity. And so here's the question I have to you. Is it evident in your life? Is your faith, is your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ evident to those who are around you? Do the people that you work with know that you have a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Does your family know that you have a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I love whenever teenagers uh, uh, begin dating. Because the, 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 the question naturally comes, you know, uh, we, we, we begin 
you know, they're you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, however, whatever age they are, whenever they begin showing interest uh, in, in the other sex and in uh, a, more, uh, a more serious uh, realm. And, and working with teenagers and being in the school, uh, you know, one of, one of the first questions that I always ask whenever I find out, you know, uh, so-and-so is dating so-and-so, I ask the question, I say, well, well do they love Jesus? Because that's, that's the most important thing, and we've, we've tried to, to teach our children, and, and time will tell how good of a job that, that we've done, but we've tried, tried to teach our children that the most important thing, whenever you look for a, a spouse, when you look for a future, a future partner in this life, is that they love Jesus, is that they, they are, they are 100% in love with Jesus. And so I ask teenagers when they begin dating, well, do they love Jesus? Does your boyfriend or girlfriend, do they love Jesus? And for the most part, for the most part, this is the answer I get. I don't know. And typically speaking, if the answer to do they love Jesus is I don't know, well, I know. Because if you love something, it's evident in their life. How do I know? Because my little boy loves LSU football. He loves LSU baseball. He loves LSU basketball. He loves LSU gymnastics. He loves LSU field hockey. He loves LSU anything. Anything LSU, he loves. How do I know? Because it's all he thinks about. It's all he talks about. You walk into his room and, and it, it might as well be 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 wallpapered purple and gold. And it's evident what he is passionate about. I hope and I pray that one day that passion will be for the Lord Jesus. It is evident what we're passionate about, what we love. Now, the question that I have for us is, is our passion, is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ evident to those who are around us? It was evident to those who are around Daniel, even Daniel's enemies. Not just his friends, even those who hated Daniel. It was evident what he loved. It was evident his faith and his fidelity to the Lord was evident even to his enemies. Notice, if you will, notice, if you will, verse 10. Now Daniel knew the document was signed. He entered his house. Now on the roof of his chambers, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying, giving thanks before God as he had been doing previously. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand this passage. This is not, uh, this is not the, the Jewish form of the Muslim honor, Mecca, facing the east, praying. Uh, why is why does the, the the author tell us give us this this parenthetical notation that the windows to his house were open to towards Jerusalem and that that he he got on his knees three times a day and he prayed and and this was his custom this was what he did well I'm so glad you asked that question let's go to first Kings chapter eight and we'll see if we can answer this question this is not a prescription for for how we ought to pray it's a, we, we ought not to to, to face Jerusalem and pray on our knees three times a day. That is not what this is. There was a specific reason why Daniel was on his knees praying 
with his windows open toward Jerusalem, facing Jerusalem. And the reason is, is because Solomon gives this instruction in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 through 51. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. When they sin against thee, this being Israel, when they sin against thee, and when there is no man, for there is no man who does not sin, and thou art angry with them, and thou dost deliver them to an enemy, that they take them captive, and the land of the enemy is far off or near. If they take, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to thee in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to thee with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with the land of their enemies who have taken them captive, and pray to thee toward their land, which thou hast given to them, their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, the house which I have built, the house which I have built for thy name's sake, then hear thy prayer. And their supplication in heaven, their dwelling place, that, that thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people whom have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against thee, and make them objects of compassion before those whom thou hast taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are thy people, and thine inheritance, which thou hast brought forth from Egypt, from the midst of the iron furnace. Solomon had told the kings, and, and, and had written in the kings, that, that when you're in exile, that you're to pray for the people of Israel and you are to do so facing Jerusalem, that God may hear your prayer and that God may have grace, that God may hear your repentance, and that God may again restore that which he had promised, that they would restore Israel to, to their promised land, that he would bring them back and that he would establish them again as a nation and that he would, he would redeem them. And so Daniel's prayer was in accordance with Solomon's instructions. That when you're in exile, in that specific circumstance, that whenever you're in exile, when you've been captive by a foreign people and have been removed to a foreign land, that you should pray and seek God's face and repent and, and, and intercede for the people of Israel and that you should be on your face that God may redeem his people in accordance with his promise, in accordance with all that he has said he would do. So that's why Daniel was doing it. He was interceding for Israel. Daniel prays for his people. It's interesting, we go back to Daniel chapter 6, that Daniel knew the document had been written. Daniel knew the consequence of him praying. And what does the scripture say? That he did it anyway. Not only did he did it anyway, that not only did he pray anyway, but does it say that he prayed for his own head? He didn't say... God, I know I'm about to get thrown into the lion's den. I know that this is coming. Daniel was so consumed with, with the love for Israel and the love for his people and the love and, and the desire to see God redeem his people that, that his concern and that, that, that his well-being was secondary. Daniel prays for God's people. Daniel sees the supplication for others more important than his own hide. And I want to argue that the real den of lions was not where Daniel would end up the next day, but the real den of lions was right there in Daniel's bedroom. That's where the spiritual battle took place. By the time Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, the battle's already been won. 
the enemy, had all of Babylon and all of the power of the entire empire tried to separate Daniel from his God. And what did Daniel do? He got on his knees. And he faced east. He faced Jerusalem. It would have then been west. He faced Jerusalem. And he prayed. And he said, I will not allow the power of the enemy to separate me from my God. The real den of lions was the spiritual battle that took place in Daniel's bedroom. When all of Babylon sought to separate Daniel from his God, the idol here is not Darius. It's not the statute. It's security, safety, comfort, power. I mean, this injunction was only 30 days. I told my wife, I can do anything for a month. You know, I can, I can, you know, if you want to, you know, go on this, this, this newfangled diet, I can eat vegetables for a month. I can, I can, I can eat, you know, low fat, no fat. I can do anything for a month. And, and that could have been Daniel's mindset. I can do anything for a month. I'll close the windows. I'll, I'll pretend like, you know, no, no, nothing's that, that, that there is no other God other than the God of Persia. I, I'll, I'll, I'll acquiesce. After all, I'm in a position of power. How much more can God use me in this position of power and this influence? He could have used excuse after excuse after excuse to, 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 to acquiesce. He said, I am, I am, if, I am in a position of, of security, of safety, of comfort, of power. And the idol was not Darius. The idol was not the king of Persia. The idol was his own comfort, his own safety, his own security. And Daniel said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he bowed down his head and he prayed. I want us to notice a couple of things as we close. First of all, crisis did not bring Daniel to his knees. He was already there. Many of us, whenever we're, we're strapped with, with hardships, with circumstance, with, with pain, with tribulation, with trial, that's when we hit our knees. I want to point out that Daniel was already on his knees as was his custom, as he had been doing for year after year after year. He got on his knees three times a day and sought the God of Israel, cried out to him, interceded for his people, developed that intimate relationship with God. The crisis did not bring Daniel to his knees. The, the, the statute, the injunction did not bring Daniel to his knees. He was already there. Church, how do we expect God to use us when the only time we pray is whenever our life falls apart? We need to spend time with God on an intimate basis day in and day out. So when the crisis happens, when, when life does kick us in the teeth, we don't have to go to our knees. We're already there. We've already got a relationship with the king. We can, all, we, we can go to him as a loving father whom we have a, a vibrant relationship with him. And we can, we can intercede and we can pray and we can, we can dialogue with that which, which, which is burdening our hearts. Not only was it his custom, but I want us to notice his posture. Daniel approaches the throne of grace on his knees. Here is a man who has unbelievable authority, unbelievable power, unbelievable influence. And what does he do? He gets on his knees. And you can argue that, that it is not the physical posture that God's concerned with. It's the, it's the, the posture of the heart. And, and you would be right. But is not the posture of our heart demonstrated 
by our physical posture? James said it like this, you show me your faith apart from your works, I show you my faith by my works. You convince me that someone's loving, kind, and giving, yet they don't love people, they're not kind to people, they don't give to people, I'll have a hard time believing they're loving, kind, and giving. Here was somebody who was humble, who saw that, that while, yes, I may be in a position of authority, that all of the authority, all the position, all the power, all the influence that I have is a gift from God, and I am forever humbled. Daniel's posture was broken. And while it is a throne of grace, it is nevertheless a throne. And lastly, I want us to look at verse 15. The king says this. Verse 16. The king gave orders. Cast Daniel into the lion's den. Then the king spoke to Daniel and said this, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. The statement from the Persian king, and we're going to camp out a little bit more on this next week, realized that even he didn't have the power to save. He acknowledges the only one who is able to save, and that's King Jesus. This morning, as you're here, you may be, no doubt, in crisis. You may be in the midst of the den of lions itself. You may be staring down the barrel of, of, of the consequences that you know are coming, of the circumstance, of the trial, of the tribulation that you know are coming. Let me encourage you, Daniel was already in prayer. He was humble. His posture was bowing before his God. And they, they, both he and the king acknowledged that only God has the power to save. If you're here this morning and you've, you've been striving on your own power to fix your lives, let me encourage you. The Persian king realized that not even he had the power to save Daniel's life. And there's nothing if the king of Persia, the most powerful man in all the world, can't save Daniel there's probably not much you're going to be able to do to save your life. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe this morning, maybe you're relying on yesterday's victories, yesterday's success, yesterday's triumphs. And you need to be reminded that God's call is faithful endurance to the end. That yesterday's victories are one day late for today. Or maybe this morning. Maybe you needed to be reminded. That God is gracious to us even in the midst of our hardships. Even in the midst of his judgment. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we read your word this morning. There's so much that encourages us. Whether it's your faithfulness in the midst of judgment. Whether it's Daniel's faithfulness in the midst of the lion's den. Maybe it's the king's confession that only God can save. But whatever it is, 
Lord, may you encourage us. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who needs to give their life to Jesus, who's been trying to fix their life on their own, they've been trying to, to, to be good enough to garner your favor, to garner your goodness, Lord, may they realize that the only salvation, the only favor that we have is that which is given to us through Christ. Jesus said, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The scripture tells us that God demonstrated his great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, if you need to trust Christ, I want to invite you to do so. Or maybe this morning, you simply need to grab someone and come to this altar and pray. As we go into this time of invitation, may the Holy Spirit have its freedom to work in this place. And may you find yourselves obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.